This is Teaching Otherwise, a podcast exploring teaching and psychology. Welcome to part two of our second episode, Teaching Under Quarantine. In this segment, we discuss with our guest, Karina Priyanka, the challenges she is facing and the solutions she's discovering as she attempts to convert her courses to a distance format. Okay, so we're here to kind of talk through a specific case study, I guess you could say, of um, trying to figure out how to make this move that I think a lot of us are being required to make. moving elements of our instruction into some kind of distant format, most likely. I think a lot of us are in that situation, and our guest today, Karina Piyomka, she's in that situation. She's having to move some of her uh, instruction online. So we're going to kind of talk through this specific situation and then use that as a way of also just talking about what are the the questions we need to address uh, in this process and also to think critically about the process. So let let me... um, let Karina describe a little bit about the situation that we're dealing with today. Oh, hi, Um, thank you for inviting me. Um, I uh, teach um, two sections of statistics for undergraduates in psychology and also one section of experimental psychology. I'm lucky um, at Lehman, uh, we have rather small class sizes. So my stats courses are 22 people each and my methods course, it has 16 students in it. Um, One of the particular challenges is that most of my um, experimental psych students are graduating seniors, so they're also very nervous at the moment about, you know, the commencement and graduation and how this move is going to affect them in a kind of a broader sense. Um, The classes are very kind of in-person focused. Um, I tend to do a lot of interactive learning and class discussion and so kind of issues of how to translate this effectively into a distance learning format in just five days um, has been anxiety provoking to say the least. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, we have been talking about this, all of us, a little bit beforehand, and we have some questions that we think might help us work through some of these issues. So I think what we wanted to start talking about were kind of the, the kinds of skills and competencies um, that students need to develop in methods classes and in statistics classes. And, and how will these translate, do we think, to distance learning format? And what things are gonna make that transition well, what things aren't? How's this gonna change the way that we teach a class like a methods class or a class like statistics class? I think that um, I would, define the skills and kind of group them into three broad categories. There are more, but we also forced to kind of make choices. Um, Those are uh, developing conceptual understanding of various concepts, right? If you are in a stats course, it's right uh, questions of variability, um, right? Things like central limit theorem, null hypothesis testing, rejecting the null, failing to reject the null, kind of kind of more kind of conceptual uh, questions. Then if you're in a methods course, these are questions of variability, methodology, design, um, 
The second category are calculations and actually carrying out the analysis, um, right? Whether you prioritize calculation by hand in a stats class or using a program like SPSS, Excel, R, Stata, whatever your institution requires. In my class, uh, we do uh, by hand calculations in stats courses and we use SPSS and sometimes Excel in methods courses to carry out the analysis. And the third category more broadly are the questions of critical thinking and ethical concerns, right? Um, underlying assumptions of analyses, how to make effective inferences, right? Knowing, not just knowing when to reject the null hypothesis, but what it does and does not mean when you do so. Um, so what are some of the things that, that, might, that are gonna be easier to do in a asynchronous sort of distance mode? Like, uh, what, what are things that you can provide information about and sort of predetermined exercises or something like that 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 you know are already well suited to doing in a distance format? Can I, can I step on your question a little bit, Josh? I'm sorry. I mean, just as Karina was talking about these three categories, I was just want, you said there, there really are more, but we have to choose. I just wanted to know, is this, our, is this you thinking about what you had already designed for the course and paring it down? Or is this how you're thinking about your course more broadly? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, that of course, I'm kind of working off my already designed syllabi and my courses. My experimental class is also writing intensive. So what I'm not specifically talking about here are writing elements that I'm also teaching my students and the writing workshops that uh, my colleague and I are cooperating with the writing center to accommodate students. Like it's there all, all these other stuff that is just kind of in flux at the moment. And so I feel like I am talking about what I planned for the course and what I have kind of settled on will be the most important moving forward and now trying to um, adapt the kind of these most important parts into the online environment. So with Josh's question that I interrupted then, I'd just be curious as you answer it, you know, how you're making or thinking about that translation. So I think the question, and let me get, help me get back to it, Josh, was just what, what do you think might or might not work as you go into a distance format with the different assignments you're thinking about? Oh, absolutely. So I would say that the easiest part is the calculations part. Um, from the beginning of the semester, I have been posting um, demonstration, short demonstration videos for my students and some already available on YouTube, such as like Khan Academy or other instructors uh, from other instructors and creating my own that have been directly linked to in-class demonstrations. So I think that the kind of hand calculation portion for stats course, given what I have already done in my class with already pre-existing video content and posting uh, materials for students, is probably the easiest to convert at the moment, this particular kind of technical element, right? How to calculate the t-test, how to calculate a z-score, how to, find a critical value in the table. Those are relatively straightforward things to demonstrate, either through a video or through an annotated worksheet, for instance. A question that, I, that occurs to me when I think about those kind of things is, you know, that I think everyone will probably have some low-hanging fruit when they're trying to make this transition. That is, elements of course design that they've already kind of digitized, already put online. Mm -hmm. 
I think everyone will have some of that, or most instructors will have some of that. And the question is, how do you keep the course from just becoming your low-hanging fruit, right? And and are were, were the low-hanging fruits were they already the the most important elements of the course? Were they typically the less important elements of the course? You know, like it's going to change emphasis if everyone has to rush to the things that are already online. And how much is that going to change the kind of course that you create? That's a very good question. Um, I think that um, the priorities of course are shifting. I think that it is for my stats course, that is a big part of the course. And so it does, you know, make it easier to, um, switch the course and also kind of, you know, as it pains me to trim some other things maybe that are oriented towards more critical discussion that are not as easy to convert. For the methods course, I would say it's a small part, um, right? Because the analysis part is not the major part of the methods course design. And so, but it's still easy to convert. We've, we're using pre-existing data sets in the classroom. Um, so it's a matter of restructuring the assignments so students can analyze the data themselves following, again, a short video demonstration or a step-by-step -step worksheet. But I do agree that you really want to resist the urge of making your course just about that and not about all the other things that might be as important or even more important given the context and um, learning objectives. So you mentioned your methods class not having quite as much of that low-hanging fruit. So are there some priorities that you had as you designed your class at the beginning of the semester that you're particularly grappling with as you think about how can I or will I be able to maintain these values in my course? Yes. So my experimental psychology course is um, it's, it's tricky because on one hand, because it's writing intensive and a lot of my feedback is based on track changes and, you know, a little like video feedback um, blurbs, that part is easy to maintain. However, my course is also unique in the sense that it's a six hour course that is taught in one day. I mean, it's just one day a week. And so it's like a large six hour workshop like lecture plus lab. And to accommodate students and to make the course as lively as possible, because as we know, not everyone, even the most motivated adult would sit through six hours of methods instruction and be super motivated about it. Um, I designed my course to be like an interactive workshop. Um, like I said, I try to mix and match activities, group work, discussion, um, and uh, kind of that part is very painful for me to think through how to translate into an online environment, how to take those six hours of let's do this group work, let's interrogate these interview questions or survey questions, right, and how I also like to do a lot of um, group work in a way that students receive similar problems like let's say a kind of broader topic that is similar to multiple groups, but then they're asked to, let's say, design a research question that addresses that topic to illustrate that questions can be different while topics are the same. So it creates a lot of discussion around, you know, research process and replication and design and how different labs approach the same topic differently. 
and how to translate that is a big question. Yeah, that seems like it'd be a real identity crisis where you've designed a class for a six hour block of time. And now I can't imagine doing six hours synchronous online. How are you thinking about that? Well, um, I am thinking about, um, so I am thinking about it in different multiple ways. I am thinking about spreading out the instruction over the week to Again, uh, sticking a little more closely to the textbook. My students paid for it, so I'm going to stick closer to textbook exercises so they can actually use the resources that are low kind of bandwidth, right, that they already have available at hand. Um, asking them to do like check in low stakes writing exercises, uh, little discussion boards or reflections uh, on the materials. Um, requiring a um, digital e-meeting with me um, at least every other week to discuss their progress and work individually because I also give a lot of individual attention to my students because it's a such small class I have an opportunity to do so and help them with their writing and thinking and uh, kind of development through the projects and scheduling at least you know um, brief kind of group meetings like having an element of synchronous instruction, not for six hours, but maybe for an hour, just kind of throw in a discussion question. And instead of it being a digital discussion board, actually having an in-person meeting where we can, you know, discuss the ideas and um, kind of engage with each other. I am, however, a little on the fence whether to make that attendance required or whether those uh, meetings, synchronous meetings, should be kind of optional attendance. That is something that I still haven't kind of made a final decision about. Yeah, a- as, you're, as you're talking about that, that seems like, by the way, a lot of good work for your students, and I appreciate that, um, because I, I feel like I'm struggling through, especially the discussion part of some of my courses as I think about putting these classes online. And, and one concern I really have for my own self, and I'm wondering what you think about this, is that um, a lot of my students that are face-to-face aren't accustomed to a lot of the different tools we have online. And so this is like a completely new format for them. And we've got five weeks now of school left and they've got five weeks to learn this format and master it. Um, so I, I'm just curious how you're kind of a, if you're addressing that and how you're addressing that. Does that make sense? Uh, yes. I think um, if I understand your question correctly, if you're asking me how am I accommodating the kind of the learning curve of the technology in the classroom. Um, my answer to this is to make it as low tech as possible. So um, I've been using Blackboard from the beginning of the semester, and I can I will just continue posting uh, materials um, as I have been, like whether these are um, PDFs or PowerPoints or video tutorials. So that has been a part of my course from the beginning, and students are kind of familiar with it already. Also, my students have been submitting their written assignments through Blackboard already and receiving feedback from me. So again, there is already precedent and we have already kind of crossed that bridge. So from that perspective, it makes it easier for me to carry on most of the kind of technical elements of the course 
because we have been doing that from the beginning of the semester. Um, and when it comes to additional tools, I am, so I also use Calendly to manage my appointments uh, with students. Um, and what I'm gonna do is for digital meetings, I'm going to use Zoom and I'm going to be the one sending them the links to the meeting. So I wanna kind of make sure that they don't have to learn any new tool. I'm just gonna be scheduled an, an appointment with me. Here's a link to our meeting. Just click the link and we'll, we can talk. So students don't have to download any extra apps or try to learn any new tools. All they have to do is do what they have been doing before, click the link on my calendar, pick the time that works for them and wait for the link. Yeah, I think those are those are really good like design principles because I found that you know I, I like to use for myself I like to use cutting edge technology or whatever but I've learned over the years that the oldest technology I can use is the best you know for 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 any kind of like managing distance learning with students if I can use an email or something but the older the technology the more seamlessly it will work the more students will have access to it. Now, coming back to this question that you had about making in-person stuff required, you know, I, I've, I've seen some discussion about that question. I think, it, I think it's a particularly important issue for this moment because we're not really just talking about going online. Right? That's not what we're talking about right here. You know, this is not online instruction. We're talking about, you know, bootstrapping the end of a semester, you know, um, under these these restrictions because of the COVID virus, right? And so that, I think those are two different contexts. And I think in a normal online environment, I would say for sure you should require that students come to class lecture, right? I mean, mm -hmm. of course that should be a requirement. But I think we're in the situation where everyone's being forced into something they didn't choose. And so I think it becomes really a, a sticky ethical question whether you can say you have to be there because maybe, I mean, People's situations are so complicated, nobody signed up for this, that I think it's kind of hard to require everyone to be present. You need to like build in ways, different ways for different people to access the content because the situation is so unique. Well, and I think that speaks to another issue that I was wondering about with Karina's situation. We're, we're mostly talking about as teachers, how can we consider our students' needs, but I'm thinking about you, Karina, teaching these classes. That's not the only thing that you do. Up to this point, you had kind of this Friday container that this class was in, and now it's spilling all over your week. Do you have any sense of like where the limits are for what should or could be expected of you as a teacher? Uh, you know, how, how to keep some boundaries on your time, on, on you know, what you're putting into this? Well, that's a very good question. And I'll be honest, I haven't given it that much thought. Um, I have been putting my students first so far and yes as I'm considering how to allocate time in my calendar for individual appointments um, I am thinking about kind of strict structures to impose on my time in a way that I will have to more be more disciplined in scheduling let's say email response blocks right like for instance for these two hours I respond to emails 
for like um, these two hours I'm available to students through Zoom or other appointments. I think um, structure and discipline is key at the moment to not let your life get overrun uh, by all these um, kind of unprecedented um, complications. Um, but I also think that I don't know. I don't know what I'm thinking. I'm, I'm honestly um, not sure how to, beyond that, to kind of balance the situation at the moment. I'm just trying to get the best that I can to get my courses as structured as I can before students have to come back to them. Well, and this is a time where we're, we were making sacrifices, you know, and the kind of conscientious care that you want to bring to your teaching, to your students, I think is admirable. And at the same time, I, I think that we, we do have to be thoughtful about what our administrations are asking of us and, uh, you know, what sort of precedents this could set. Yeah, I mean, the reality is that some, I mean, because this is a situation that, that you know, nobody planned for, nobody agreed to, right, you know, mm -hmm. the virus didn't consult us before it started spreading. Uh, you know, like the, the reality is, is that the exactly what we planned to do and produce and create in our courses is not going to happen. It's just some things are going to get lost in this process, and that's kind of a painful thing for I think for a teacher to have to acknowledge and face. But you know, that's a question: what can't make it to, to the end of the semester? What can't translate? into this format that's being required of us. Yeah, there's a, there's a kind of, I don't know if irony is quite the right word here, but I could see Karina doing a fantastic job at delivering on all of these things that she wants to do, and then kind of setting this, this template that makes it look like, oh, we could ask our professors to keep doing this. You know, what, what might be a Herculean task that, that you're looking at as, uh, you know, a one-time thing, uh, and and I worry about that. Well, I guess um, a lot of us are worrying about that, um, and um, there's been some, you know, speculation as to what this will mean for the future of online education and college. Like, is this just one giant natural experiment, and what, you know, college with no college, you know, is going to look like and whether we can, um, you know, make that transition. Um, so I guess I don't have a kind of satisfying answer to that, but I do think that we have to be mindful of the workload and take time to kind of set the boundaries, particularly important for our contingent faculty, right? They are, and we have a large percent of contingent faculty who are definitely not paid enough to kind of carry the workloads that this is going to require. But um, we're extremely grateful to them for, you know, doing the best they can in this situation. Yeah, I mean, they're already, uh, contingent faculty are already um, doing more than they're paid for in general. And right. they will do even more in this situation. I mean, you know, I know our contingent faculty, and they will. They'll do more, even more, in, even though no one's going to pay them more. People will probably even accuse them of being lazy because they don't have to teach classes anymore or something like that. 
But yeah, I think we do, all of us need to pay attention to those boundaries because they have, they have consequences, political consequences and consequences for our students and consequences for us. So may, maybe this is a question that we don't want to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, Karina, at the end of this semester, what would you want to be able to say that your students missed out on? because of what's happening here. Like, what do you want to be able to say, you should have had it from me in the original format because you're just not going to get 100% of X, Y, and Z. What stands out to you? I think the discussions, the types of discussion in a classroom that we tend to prioritize in Division 24 kind of the critical, examining the critical assumptions of methodologies and kind of broader ethical concerns beyond just IRB applications. Many of these discussions do, I believe, do require more of these like in-person presence where we can dissect articles and have an argument, right? I would often have students argue, right? Why this is better or that is better or, um, right, by this question is better or how to kind of bypass or um, kind of like solve a problem in a different way. And I think that that element, I like, I'm kind of coming to terms to accept that I might not be able to bring into a distant learning in the same way that I could and can in the um, in-person kind of workshop and an in-person class. Yeah, because it seems like all these fears about what if these efforts become co-opted or something like that. that. That's premised on the notion that there really is something of value that we're having to leave behind and that that could get lost in the shuffle. I think it's good to be thinking about, you know, what am I just not going to be able to give to my students? Um, well, to, um, if I'm going to use the word correctly to play the devil's advocate, um, I am, you know, um, I'm saying I'm not going to be able to bring those things in the five days that are given to me to convert my class. I wouldn't argue that it's impossible if you have uh, an opportunity to plan a fully online class where all the parties are like signing up for an online class and you have advanced notice and ability to structure assignments and required in-person attendance through e um, through digital technology that I think you can still deliver on some of these things but I don't like I think the struggle is you wake up in the morning and you're told your class is going to be online and you have prepared a semester worth of materials that are not that easily convertible that's the situation where I think we're gonna see a lot of losses yeah I can think of one you know thinking of a methods class in particular I can think of a specific example that I think encapsulates a lot of what we're talking about here. And this is, you know, how do you, how do you teach design and how do you teach design in a, in a way that is, you know, theoretically literate and, and involves critical thinking about design. I, I think when I teach methods classes, this is a big part of what I'm trying to do and what is really core to my methods class. You know, how to understand research and understand how, sort of things that different designs allow, the limitations of different designs, understanding some of the history of how they've been used in ways that are kind of ethically problematic, you know, like all that sort of like historically, critically, theoretically literate way of thinking about design. 
uh, I just can't imagine how to teach that without being in the same room. You know? And so I think, you know, that, that's, I think, a specific example. How do, how do you bring some of that to a asynchronous digital format? You know? Like, what, what, what are the strategies that are going to help you do that? Yeah, I'm I'm stumped. I don't I don't see how that, especially asynchronous. I'm I'm thinking even though if I had a Zoom meeting with all my students, I'm doing a methods class that I have to do the same thing with, mm-hmm. and there are discussions that I've got planned that I think would be just along those lines. And I I worry though, what are all the subtle ways that having everybody get on Zoom and try to have the same conversation? that it might be disrupted. I mean, the fact that they're on camera, uh, that in itself, I think, just brings a different dynamic. Are people going to feel like they can jump in and speak up? I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's tough. And um, I agree that that is definitely a potential loss, even long term, if that becomes, you know, if, if that becomes the future of higher education. Um, the, that opportunity for critical discussion um, is definitely limited and becomes limited significantly. I think there are some ways that you can start to address those issues. I don't think there's any way. I think you're, Brady and Karina are both right that there's no way to to replace that that you know the commons, the the dialogue of the commons. You know, you just can't replace that. I have seen some moderate success in some classes that I've done with English professors where they use a lot of kind of asynchronous um, commenting structures that involve like writing prompts and things like that. That was, it was helpful. I will, I will say that it was worked better than I thought it would where they, where, you know, we as the instructors, we would develop certain kinds of writing prompts that we hoped would lead to the kinds of discussions that we're hoping to create. And then we created these kind of compulsory um, discussion environments where they have to post them online and then the other members of the class have to comment at least once or something like that you know and so you sort of create a discussion environment that is happening asynchronously and then you're sort of seeding that discussion with you know certain kinds of critical questions and you might even throw some of your own questions in there you know like, what do you think about this if you consider that it's, it's a poor substitute I think to a real conversation but I think you can still do some of it asynchronously if you do it in a, in a way that's well-planned. Yeah, I think this captures the dilemma that I feel more broadly is just, I, I want to make an effort. I feel like we have to make an effort to bring what's good about our classes to our students, but we also need to be in touch with just what's gonna fall through the cracks. And, and, and I hope that it's clear to everybody involved that it is a poor substitute, however close we might try to come to it. Karina? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Well, I, I don't mean to take the conversation in a different direction, but just when it, when it comes to your stats and your methods classes, what is the, what's the thing that you're most anxious about right now? What am I most anxious about? I'm most anxious about being fair to my students. I think that there is a lot of conversation among faculty members that, you know, we will have to 
accept a certain level of grade inflation, probably. Um, and kind of, you know, thinking about what is the most fair way to provide students with a learning opportunity to the best of their ability and assess their work in a way that does not necessarily penalize them for that learning curve in technology or for technical difficulties that they might encounter or for the fact that their kids are now at home because their schools are closed and they are all of a sudden have more responsibilities during the time when they thought they will be in classroom and have only one responsibility. Um, so I feel like that's what I spend most of my time thinking about. Like, how do I translate this course in a way that allows my students enough flexibility to do their best um, while still maintaining the integrity of the course and the material that is being presented, learned, and um, assessed? You know, I think there might be some value in integrating some of those concerns in an explicit way into the way that you handle the rest of the semester. So just level with your students a bit about some of the, the dilemmas that you're wrestling with. And, and maybe even more than that, like ask them, you know, how are you doing? You know, how, how are you doing? And, you know, just like have a discussion about what's happening right now. I think probably everybody should do that, is have discussions with their students about what's happening and what we're losing and what we're all worried about. You know, this kind of discussion with your students could probably be really valuable. Yes, I've seen, so um, both um, uh, the emails from Lehman Administration and other kind of forums and learning centers that are kind of providing advice uh, to faculty on how to convert the courses, the two what I found to be very valuable uh, pieces of advice that were given, A, is to explain to the students very clearly why did you adopt the changes that you adopted, right? Kind of explain your reasoning and rationale behind certain changes, because let's face it, we will be changing. We might be changing how points are allocated. Some assignments will be taken off the syllabus. Some assignments might be added in. And that's, again, not what students were told will happen and how they will be evaluated in the beginning of the semester. So being as transparent as possible, right, and tell students the dilemmas that you're facing and how you're resolving those dilemmas, I think is very important. So there is no kind of black box of decision making that they just got being looped out of. Um, and the second uh, advice that I am considering implementing is creating a separate kind of a Q&A discussion board in your Blackboard or other environment that you're using where students can just go in and pose their questions or concerns, right? So it's kind of a community space that is not necessarily content oriented, but can accommodate a broader spectrum of questions uh, that, again, going back to the concerns of labor for the faculty, Right. If students have questions of how, where do I find this or that, other students can answer them. And so that kind of lowers the workload of answering every student's email individually, right, uh, as they come in um, at you. So I feel like that is, um, those two things um, can help with this transition and in a very humane way to kind of can convey that we're all in this situation and we're all in it together. and. You know, yes, professors have more power over deciding what the course is going to look like, but we are not blind to the issues that our students are facing or might be facing as the semester progresses. 
a very nice inspiring way to wrap up our conversation <laughs> nice statement of where our responsibilities are i you know I, I know we'll talk more about this uh off the offline but we've kind of come to the end of our time here so i just want to thank you karina for being willing to talk through some of these difficult questions i think a lot of people find some help in the questions that you've raised and you've put so much work into this i hope maybe some of the resources that you've gathered in this process we can post to the podcast oh absolutely yeah. i'll share whatever i can all right thank you and uh, uh thank you joe and brady too for participating in the yeah, thank you karina yeah thank you thank you Thanks for joining us. We hope to catch you again soon on another episode of Teaching Otherwise.